Well, I've heard that you can grab people's attention by talking about monkeys. Because everybody loves monkeys, right? I mean, look at that smiling monkey. So let's talk about monkeys. I've heard it uh, said that, that some jungle tribes have devised a really clever technique to catch monkeys. What they do is they take a, a coconut, they, they, they make a hole in the coconut, they hollow out the coconut, and then they put inside the coconut something that the monkey really loves, maybe some fruit, some delicacy. And then they tie that coconut to a tree. And when a monkey discovers the coconut with this delicious food inside, he places his hand through the hole into the coconut and he grasps the food. And then he tries to remove the food from the coconut, but he can't do it because the hole isn't big enough. The hole is only big enough for the monkey to get his hand in like this. It's not big enough to pull anything out of the coconut. But he'll keep trying and trying and trying. And they found that the monkey will not let go of what's in the coconut. And so as this monkey sits there hour after hour trying to remove this food from the coconut, the hunters come and kill the monkey. Apparently they taste delicious. So the question I'm gonna ask this morning, and we're gonna revisit this, is are you acting like a monkey? Are you acting like a monkey? Now I'm gonna take that off, otherwise you're not gonna hear another thing I say. You're just gonna stare at that smiling monkey. This morning we're in part three of a series of messages I've called uh, Enemies of the Heart, where we're looking at a few emotions, if they get lodged in our heart, become very destructive and harmful to us. and we're looking how the gospel of Jesus uh, sets us free from these emotional strongholds we have and liberates us from them and, and brings healing to our hearts. And uh, so I don't think the messages are up online yet. Uh, a few people have asked for notes. If you weren't here the last couple Sundays or you would like notes for those messages, you can find them at the, um, at the Welcome Center. They're there. Last week, we looked at um, guilt. We looked at the destructive power of unresolved guilt and how to uh, overcome that, uh, that guilt through confession, the act of confession. We, we talked about guilt, and if you boiled it all down, guilt really is a form of debt. Guilt really is, I owe you something. That's what guilt is. I owe you something. It's debt. And as we look at these emotions, we're going to find that all of these emotions are really some form of debt. Somebody owes somebody else something. This is certainly the case with what we're going to look at this morning, which is anger. Anger. Why are people angry? Why are you angry? Well, James says in James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, he says, What causes anger? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. He's not talking about a literal murder. He's talking about the sort of murder Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5 when when Jesus says, Even if you hate a brother in your heart... You commit murder. So, so James says, where does anger come from? Anger comes when you don't get, when you can't get what it is you want. And who doesn't want what they deserve? Who doesn't want what is owing to them? 
Anger comes when you don't get what is owed to you, when there is this debt. In that sense, anger is the opposite of guilt. If guilt was I owe you, anger is you owe me. You owe me something. And we all know what anger feels like. It can come in many different forms, many different intensities, because we have all sorts of different debts that may be owed to us, things that may be taken from us. It might be a boss who didn't follow through with a promise for a promotion or a bonus or something like that. I remember when I was a college student building greenhouses and um, our our boss had convinced us to come back another summer because he said, at the end of the summer, I'm going to give you this bonus and he told us how much it was and that enticed us to come back. And at the end of the summer, when we visited the boss, he said, I don't know what you're talking about. What, 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 I don't don't remember ever saying that. Do you think I fantasized (laughs) more than once when I drove by that greenhouse about taking my knife and walking along and slicing that poly all the way down? Yes, I'm a wicked person in my heart. Yeah, sure. Maybe it's a boss who didn't give you what was promised. Maybe a friend who broke your trust by gossiping, stabbing you in the back in some way. Maybe something even bigger. Maybe it's a spouse who neglected you, is neglecting you, a spouse who left you, a spouse who cheated on you, left a huge emotional wound in your life. Maybe it's a father who abandoned you and robbed you of your childhood, your security, affection, whatever it might be. We all know Anger, because we all know what it's like to be owed something, someone. Our first reaction to anger normally is, uh, or sorry, our, 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 is to say, well, it's j- I have every right to feel angry. I have every right. This was taken from me. I'm justified in feeling the way I feel. And that's absolutely right, in a sense. Jesus got angry. There's times in your Bible where you will read that Jesus felt indignation, which to me I think is a strong form of anger. Jesus felt angry when he saw injustice. He got angry. And if you never get angry, you're probably not close enough to the heart of God. Okay? Probably just apathetic in ways you shouldn't be. Anger isn't wrong. It's what you do with the anger that can be very problematic Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, he says, In your anger, do not sin. So anger isn't sin inherently, but it can become sin. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. So, So what Paul is saying is the problem is unresolved anger. Unresolved anger is very harmful. And so he says in verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. He says, the only solution to anger is to get rid of it. Now that word get rid in the Greek is a very strong word to separate yourself completely. You ever walked into a spider web? You're walking down the street whistling, and all of a sudden, boom, what do you do? I mean, you, you, you're pulling it out of your hair, your ears, out of your mouth. You get that spiderweb off you as quickly as you can. This is, this is the sort of action that Paul's describing here. Get rid of, separate yourself completely from anger, rage, bitterness. Why? 
because it will do you much harm. It will do you much harm in, in, in a few different ways. Anger spreads like a virus. Have you ever met angry people? You would say, that's an angry person. Maybe you're an angry person. I had someone after the first service come to me and said, that hit me right here, I'm an angry person. I said, good, I said, I knew there was at least one of you out there. <laughs> Maybe you're an angry, how, how, does, how does someone become an angry person? It's anger that entered the life because something was owed and they didn't resolve it and that anger spread like a virus through other, through, through other relationships and other areas of their life and it took them over. This is why Paul says, don't give, it, don't give Satan a foothold. Get, don't even let the sun go down on it. What is a foothold? A foothold is a place from which something spreads. When you, let, when you don't resolve your anger, it gives, it gives it a foothold that will spread like a virus in your life. And it tends to hurt those that you love the most. And some of you know this because you had a daddy like this. He had a boss who was really hard on him and he came home and he took it out on you or he took it out on mom, right? Instead of at the boss. This is, this is, this is what anger does. It causes you to take it out on those, to hurt those that you love the most, even if they're not the ones that have wronged you in any way. It's the reality of it. Paul says, get rid of it. It's going to hurt those around you. Paul says, get rid of it because when you do not resolve anger, it allows somebody else to control your life. It gives them power. It, it gives what they've done to you in the past the power over your future, what you're going to feel tomorrow, what you're going to do tomorrow. If guilt is to be in the prison of my sin, anger is to be in the prison of another person's sin. And Paul says, I don't want, I don't want someone else's actions to dictate how you feel how you think, how you act, because some of those people that wronged you, they're dead, they're in the grave. They can't pay you back. Or something they took from you could never be paid back. How do you, how do you pay back a broken marriage? How does a father pay back not being there for his kids when they're growing up? You can't, you can't pay that back. So if you don't get rid of it, then it, 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 it allows the past, it allows another person's sin to control your life. For all those reasons, Paul says get rid of it. He says the answer to it is be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. He says the solution to anger is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Forgiveness means to cancel the debt. That's all it is. Forgiveness is canceling the debt that is owed to you. As this parable of Jesus will show us, it's a parable that my guess is you... um, Many of you know quite well, it's one of Jesus' most well-known parables. In Matthew chapter 18. It, it, it begins with Peter asking Jesus a question. In Matthew 18 verse 21, Peter comes to Jesus and asks, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? So Peter asks, what, Jesus, what should forgiveness look like? What should it look like? Some I should do seven times? I, I think Peter's question was, essentially, how many times shall I set somebody else free from their sin? How many times shall I set somebody else free? Now, Jesus says, no, not seven times, but 77 times, 77 times. Now, are, are they just pulling random numbers out of the air? Eh, 77. 78, now nah, you crossed a line, 77. 
No, no, that's not what's happening. If you, if, if you, these numbers are not just random numbers. These are very purposeful numbers. If you go to Genesis chapter four, near the beginning of the Bible, the very first murder, Cain kills his brother Abel, and God comes to Cain and says, Cain, anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance 10 times over. Okay? A few verses later in Genesis chapter four and a few generations later, one of Cain's descendants, a man by the name of Lamech, I guess murder runs in the family. He finds himself murdering a man and he says, if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech will be avenged 77 times. So we see this escalation of vengeance, of getting even. And so what Jesus says when he says, no, 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 not seven times, 77 times, I think what Jesus is saying is that the unlimited revenge of the sinful human heart is now giving way to the unlimited forgiveness of those who would follow Jesus Christ. The unlimited forgiveness that is found in the kingdom of God. Unlimited. I mean, how is, how is that support sort of forgiveness even possible? And Jesus tells us through this story, a story which he says a picture, is a picture of the kingdom of heaven. He says in verse 23, there was a, uh, the, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children all be sold to repay the debt. No, no, no doubt the guy couldn't pay. You know how much money this is? If you look at the little footnote in your Bible, you'll, you'll find that one bag of gold or one talent is worth 20 years wages. This guy owed 11.2 billion Canadian dollars in our terms. 11 point, it would take him 200,000 years of taking every penny he earned to pay off this debt. In other words, it's so big that it cannot be paid off. It's impossible. Even though the guy says, buy it, give me more time, give me more time. No, no, it's impossible. It's way too big a debt. And it becomes pretty clear who the characters in this story represent. This king to whom the debt is owed is God. The servant who owes him $11.2 billion is you. And it's me. It's all of us. And the debt we owe is our sin to God that we have not been and thought and done as we should have been and thought and done. And so we owe God this massive debt. Now, why is it so incredibly big? I, I mean, do, we, do you owe God that much? $11.2 billion, if you want to quantify it? I mean, is really your sin? Is your sin really worth $11.2 billion? I think what the point is, God... God is, we, you can't even fathom how great and holy and magnificent God is. I mean, God spoke 400 billion billion stars into existence at his word. Okay? Infinitely powerful, infinitely holy, and any sin against an infinite God is, worth, is, is a sin of infinite value that becomes an infinite debt that can never be repaid. This is the position we find ourselves in relationship with God. But look what the king does. It says, as the servant fell to his knees and said, be patient with me, I will pay you back everything. The king knew this was impossible. The servant's master took pity on him and he what? He canceled the debt and let him go. Set him free. He canceled 
the debt. Now, of course, this is a picture of what Jesus is gonna do on the cross a few chapters later. This is the gospel, that God in his mercy and compassion on us bore, paid the debt himself. I mean, this is what the cross is. He took all the debt that was owed by us to God and he nailed it to the cross and he removed it from us and he set us free from it. Free from God's punishment, his wrath. And we're set free just by receiving the forgiveness, just by repenting of our sins and receiving it by trusting in Jesus. And we are set free from that debt. And, and we ought to feel like this guy must have felt like. Can you imagine how this guy felt? How many of you know what it's like just to be under a weight of debt? I mean, you don't need to raise your hand because I know it's lots of you, right? And, and on, on November 1st, I'm, we're buying a house. We're buying the Porter's house. This is great. So... And we're excited about that, how God has worked this all out. And, and they've been very good to us and they've been very generous to us, but we're still gonna have a few hundred thousand dollars of debt, right? And um, can you imagine, and so some of you, you're there, you're there right now. Can you imagine what would happen if the bank called you or you, know, you walked in to make, make some sort of big payment and they say, nah, we decided to wipe it all out. You don't owe us a thing. <coughs> hint, hint, hint. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry, that wasn't fair. I can only imagine the feeling. What a glorious, no. So, but you can imagine how this guy would have left, right? Whoa, from 11.2 billion to zero? Oh my goodness, he was free. He would have been like walking on clouds. I, I gotta go, I'm gonna go, to this, I'm gonna go to Toys R Us, I'm gonna get toys for the kids, I'm gonna go get that, that ring for my wife that she's always wanted, I'm gonna go get that truck for me. You know, forget the ring, I'm just gonna go get the truck, right? <laughs> and, and he would have been so excited leaving there. He was free, he was liberated, the joy. And on his way to go get his kids ice cream cones to deliver them the news we're told that he stumbles across another man. A man who owes him a little bit of money. It says that he grabbed this man and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. How much did the man owe him? A hundred silver denarii, if you do the math, that's about $20,000 today. A sizable amount, but not 11.2 billion. This other man begs for mercy, for time. But this forgiven servant refuses. Instead, he has the man thrown into prison until he can pay back the whole debt. All of a sudden, all of that joy and freedom he experienced leaving the palace is gone. Now again, his heart is burdened. Not with his debt to another, but with someone else's debt to him. Now his joy flees, and in its place resides anger. And he throws this man in prison, but word gets back to the master, and the master's not happy. And so he calls that man before him and says, you wicked servant, I canceled all your debt because you begged me to, even though you could never pay it back. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? 
It says, in his anger, the master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. This is how the heavenly father will treat each of you unless you treat your brother or sister from the heart. Well, that's a bit of a troubling statement, isn't it? Notice it says, in, your ang- in his anger, the master handed him over to be tormented. The Greek word there is like, it's, it's, it's like an ISIS sort of word, okay? It's tormented, it's tortured. And someone asked me after the first service, what, is God torturing us? Like, what, is, what does that mean that God in his anger hands you over to be tortured? And, and, and I guess there's some beta, maybe some question as to what exactly this means and this looks like, but you'll notice that it isn't, it isn't the master that's doing the torturing. What, what does it say the master's doing? He's handing him over. He's handing him over. Who are the tormentors? Who are the tormentors he's handing him over to? I wonder if the tormentors aren't all the fruit that comes from the man's anger. The bitterness, the rage, the malice, all the tormentors that rob from this man, rob from him the joy and the freedom that that God had just given to him. Because you know, angry people, if you know angry people, they're not joyful people. They're not, they're not happy people. They're not thankful people. They're angry people. You can't be an angry person and be a joyful person because the heart is a circulatory system. What comes out of the heart comes back to the heart. It's a loop. If out of the heart comes anger, joy does not come back to it. And so all the joy and the freedom that this man had received from the Lord in this instant is gone as he embraces anger I think what Jesus is saying is that if we demand payment, we are the ones that pay. If we demand payment, we are the ones that pay. Just like that monkey. This is mine. This is mine. I will not let go. The monkey ends up dead because he cannot let go. I think Jesus is saying the same thing here. He says, to refuse to forgive Peter is to choose self-harm. You're so focused on not wanting to let that other guy go free, you're the one that, you need to set yourself free. To refuse to forgive is to choose self-harm. So coming back to the question, are you acting like a monkey? Are you acting like a monkey? Is there something that you're hanging on to? Something you're owed? and you're angry about it, and you're hanging on. But all it will bring you is self-harm. Are you acting like a monkey in any way? Do you need to set yourself free by forgiving? You know, God freed us by forgiving us. This is the point of this parable. God has freed us by forgiving us, and we stay free by forgiving others. When I accept God's forgiveness of me, I'm set free from the penalty of my sin. When I extend forgiveness to another, I'm set free from the power of their sin. That it will have no sway. It will have no hold on me. It will not rob me of my joy and my freedom. And so James says, and Paul says, and Jesus says, the answer to anger is to forgive freely as God has forgiven us in Jesus. 
And I realize for some that that debt is, that hurt is so deep and that, and that debt is so great that you wonder how in the world that could possibly happen, that sort of forgiveness. C.S. Lewis said that everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive, right? I'm sure that's true. I just wanna take a couple of minutes before we go to the table to maybe just share some, some, some steps in the way of forgiveness, some things that are important in that process from this parable. I think um, the first thing is you need to identify who you're angry with. Anger spreads like a virus. Just because you express anger at so-and-so doesn't mean they're the one that has wronged you or owes you anything. You need to identify who it is you're angry with. Figure that out. I mean, in the parable, it was the king knew who owed him money. And that man knew who owed him money. Forgiveness is not just a decision to move on. Trying to forget a debt is not the same as canceling a debt. If you try to forget it, it'll never work. You'll never be free from it. You need to identify who you're angry with and then you need to determine what they owe you. And I think this is where a lot of people misstep. And I've seen people hit this point and then they, they won't do this. They try to forgive generally, but general forgiveness does not have the power to overcome specific hurts. People wronged you in certain ways. They took certain things from you. And if you won't identify those things, you cannot cancel them. If you try to forgive generally, that won't work for specific sins or hurts. So you need, to, you need to figure out, you need to quantify, you need to write it down. What has been taken from you? What is it that is owed to you? Because you can't cancel a debt that isn't clearly identified. And then thirdly, once you've done that, then you can cancel the debt. You can choose to cancel the debt. Because forgiveness is a decision, it's not a feeling. And this is where we, we wonder whether we've forgiven because we still feel. But forgiveness doesn't begin as a feeling, it begins as a decision, something you choose to cancel the debt. And it will always be a decision before it's ever a feeling. And this can be a transaction that happens between you and God in your heart. Sometimes it has to be because that person's dead, they're in the grave, they're not there anymore. Or it can be something that happens in conversation with the individual. But um, it might help to, to mark forgiveness, just as a suggestion, with something tangible. I, I remember uh, hearing a story about uh, a man whose father-in-law had harmed him in some way, and the guy was dead. So he couldn't speak with him. So he, he, he came and he, and he took a chair and he set up a chair, an empty chair, and he sat and he faced the empty chair. And he spoke. Silly? I don't think so. He spoke. He did something to mark the occasion to cancel the debt. Maybe that's writing a letter. Maybe that's having a conversation. Maybe that's sitting across from an empty chair. I don't know. But it might be helpful to, 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 to formally, officially, in some tangible way to cancel the debt that is owed to you. And like I said, once you do that, the feelings don't necessarily, they don't necessarily fall in line with the decision right away, do they? That often takes time because feelings don't immediately change normally. And that doesn't mean that forgiveness isn't real. We cannot believe the lie that because I feel something, that means I haven't forgive, forgiven it. No, forgiveness is a decision 
that they no longer owe you. And when those feelings come back to you, you have to restate your decision to the feelings. You restate it. No. I have specifically canceled that debt. No, they don't owe me that. I have canceled that debt. They don't owe me. If you keep rebuffing your feelings by restating your case, restating your decision, I think in time, eventually, those feelings follow your will. And you find greater and greater liberty from them. So my question for you is, is there any anger lodged in your heart this morning, whether big or whether small? And you might say, oh, it's little. It's no big deal. It's little. Yeah, footholds are always little until they're not anymore. Is there any anger lodged in your heart, any debt this morning you need to cancel because you have looked at the debt that, of yours that God has canceled? Last, uh, this last week, a woman from this church came to me and she shared with me her story about a husband who had abandoned her and just caused her great emotional hurt in that. And that was decades ago, but she still carried that, that anger, those wounds, bitterness. And so she just felt like she had to be free of that, and so she thought the only way to do that is to go and find him and have a conversation, and that's what she did. It took a lot of courage, but she went, and she had a conversation, and she explained how she felt what had happened to her, and then she offered forgiveness. She spoke the words, and she told me, she said, Rusty, when that happened, those shackles that I'd been carrying for decades fell off of me. She said, I couldn't believe it. I walked out of there with a freedom that I hadn't had for decades. Because she had chosen to confront the dead and to forgive it. So is there any anger lodged in your heart this morning that you need to rid yourself of? You know, I think coming to this communion table is just such a perfect way to bring this, um, this message to a conclusion because, uh, you know, as believers in Jesus, I'm called and I'm liberated to view forgiveness through the perspective of the cross, of what God has done for me. And for those of us who know God's grace, we come at this from a whole different angle with totally different resources, the resources of God's grace that he's given to us in Jesus Christ through whom he forgave our debt and so we can no longer live life, view life through what has been done to us, but through what has been done for us. Through what has been done for us, which we celebrate at this table. And so I want to call those who are helping to come and join me here at the table now. And when you take this piece of bread and you take that cup in your hand, I want you to look at it and I want you to notice that, I want you to notice that that's not your blood. And I want you to notice that that's not your body. I want you to notice that this is the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you and this is the broken body of Jesus broken for you to set you free from your sin and the power of your sin. And as you hold this and as you are reminded of what this represents, I invite you to ask, 
the Lord just to search your heart and say, Lord, if there is any unforgiveness in my heart, as I embrace again your forgiveness of me, Father, if there's any unforgiveness there, Lord, help me to forgive that thing. Free me from this anger that might be lodged in my heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you here this morning again for the greatness of your forgiveness. $11.2 billion. Lord, our sin was a debt we could never repay. We were without hope. And yet because of your love and your mercy for us in Jesus Christ through the cross, you bore the burden of our sin and all its guilt and punishment and we are now free from that. Free from the weight of that. Free to know you and to belong to you and have the gift of eternal life. Father, as we celebrate again the greatness of your forgiveness, I pray that the overflow of that joy in our hearts as we take this again, Lord, would would just dislodge within our hearts any unforgiveness, any anger that resides there, Father. Enable us to forgive freely as you have freely forgiven us. In Jesus' name, amen.